Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, Alex's name is Alex, and this week we are talking about ch 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 chip and Dale. Rangers. <laughs> How's it going, Alex? It's going very well. I'm very excited to talk about this. Um, I think my only regret is that I came to Rocky suggesting this about... 24 hours before some news regarding a star of the film dropped. <laughs> we might as well get it out of the way up top because it really has nothing to do with the movie. That is get it out there. Uh, but yeah, I guess that can be our, our new segment, dun 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 dun, dun what's pulpin, uh, that uh, uh, Mulaney, uh, I'm sure everyone listening knows this, brought uh, Dave Chappelle out as a surprise guest at his, his show in Columbus. And um, Dave Chappelle proceeded to be Dave Chappelle in his uh, modern form. Yeah, yeah. I, I could I could see a number. Hmm, I, I don't want to make too many assumptions about like how this came together because obviously I don't think that John Mulaney brought Dave Chappelle out to do transphobic jokes. Um, and I think there are a couple ways to sort of figure how it came together of course these shows are bankrolled by netflix and uh, it's you know entirely possible that they were involved in the decision to have Chappelle show up which is not to say that you know it's, it's pretty clear that mulaney was on board with it but i also could see mulaney coming from a place of ignorance that's like i know he's told transphobic jokes but what are the chances he's gonna do it again you know, I, I think it's something where it, it's a situation where, you know, obviously it's not something that affects him personally. And I could see him just like not having had the expectation that he would do that. Yeah, um, I think it seems he's mostly just kind of it happened and he's trying to move past it. The news isn't necessarily letting him move past, it, especially because uh, at a lot of comedy shows these days, including this one, they make you lock up your phone. So there's no video yeah. evidence, only uh multiple anecdotes so yeah and occasionally conflicting anecdotes but uh we we have a general picture of 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 what he said i think the 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 dave Chappelle situation is similar i don't want to conflate the actual things being done but i think i think dave Chappelle is sort of in this in this pewdiepie situation where like he he is a figure you know he he as obviously a hugely influential comedian and someone who uh had this this great legacy built up where uh and has a reputation as a provocateur where you know as he sort of slides into uh provoking a, a reactionary audience he j- just you know i i think a lot of american comedians are not really ready to distance themselves from Dave Chappelle and it, it would take uh, a, a, a sort of tide of change to, uh, to for him to really see pushback for what he's doing. It, it's interesting though because like Ricky Gervais is in the news now and I feel like Americans and American comedians are very ready to shit on Ricky Gervais. <laughs> <laughs> like they have no problem doing that. Maybe it'll maybe when they see that 
they're so similar, it'll make them come to their senses and be like, hmm, we're gonna shit on Ricky Gervais for this, but I kinda doubt it. Yeah, I mean, maybe if Chappelle, like, goes on tour with Ricky Gervais, (laughs) (laughs) things will fall into place. Netflix has already lost so much stock over the past month, I think they would know doing that would be, uh, like, uh, commercial death, so. So, uh... Not much else is pulping. I think we're just going to get right into it. We had a nice breezy episode last week. I'm liking the, I'm liking the, the, the flow we've got on the show right now. So, uh, as always, I have prepared some history that we can get into before we get into the thing itself. So, Chip and Dale were first introduced in 1943. Uh, they were created by uh, Bill Justice, and they first appeared in the wartime propaganda short Private Pluto. Uh, the premise of that short is that Pluto has to guard, like, uh, is is in the military, has to guard, like, this pillbox from saboteurs, and the saboteurs turn out to be these two unnamed chipmunks who are using, like, cannons to crack nuts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, they're, they're sort of antagonists to Pluto in this short. Uh, and that, that's their first appearance. They don't have names, they look the same, they don't have too much personality, but, like, the, you know, this this pair of chipmunks first appears three years later they reappear in the short squatters rights where they take up residence in mickey's stove uh, and they sort of have this this altercation with pluto mickey's like going out to chop wood and the end of the altercation is that like they you know hit pluto over the head with mickey's gun and then they squirt ketchup on him and it looks like he shot himself and then mickey comes in and sees him and he they like run away and then chip and dale get the cabin to themselves Oh my god, that is... I mean, like, I know that the older cartoons don't... They were meant to often be, like, family-appropriate, but what was considered family-appropriate was a lot uh, less strict than the whole, like, rating system, moral guardian thing we have now, but goddamn... Yeah, and even more so, it's like, you know, I, I think Mickey more so than, like, the, the, the Warner Brothers or the Hanna-Barbera or the other cartoons that were getting made. There was a, more of a clean reputation that he had, but Definitely. <laughs> clearly, you know, the standards were different at the time. So that short was nominated for the Oscar, uh, and it was directed by Jack Hanna, who's, he, he had the idea to pair Chip and Dale with Donald Duck at this point. He, he directed like every Donald Duck cartoon of, of, of the classic era, and this is his quote on it. We began looking for foils for the duck. Naturally, his three nephews were always available. While Donald and his nephews worked well together, we needed variety in our material, so we tried a variety of characters. This is not the only quote I found from him where he refers to Donald as the duck. <laughs> and I really like that, if only because he, again, directed, like, every single Donald Duck cartoon. <laughs> he doesn't deserve my respect. He's just the duck. <laughs> He's just the duck. It's like how George Lucas calls lightsabers laser swords. <laughs> <laughs> when you have that much authority, you don't need to, like, be specific or give the right terminology. Because everyone knows what you're talking about. You're talking to Jack yeah, Hannon. He's talking a- about the duck. You know what duck he's talking about. Yeah, we needed a foil for the duck. This is how I most I'm most familiar with Chippendale's characters. Um, honestly, out of Disney's like 
in like Disney franchise characters versus like characters that are part of a, a series or a franchise owned by Disney, but the characters that are like Disney characters themselves. Um, I'm not super familiar with Chip and Dale. Uh, I saw some of the older cartoons as a kid that was like, you know, them being the mischievous antagonist to Donald Duck. But uh, that was pretty much it up until like this movie. So that's really interesting. I was going to I was going to ask about that, because for me, it was like I definitely did not like grow up in a Disney family, really. And so I never saw really any of the classic cartoons. Uh, I, you know, Rescue Rangers was before my time also. So I was like only vaguely just just sort of culturally aware of Chip and Dale. I don't think I had actually seen them in anything. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I was I didn't watch that many classic Disney cartoons either. I don't know where I saw the cartoons. I just have images in the back of my memory. But I watched a lot of like Hanna Barbera cartoons and like Warner Brothers as a kid. So, mm-hmm. so the classic. Disney shorts uh, is like really out of my purview, but um, I want you to keep going because I want to talk about stuff that gets in their history that gets a bit closer to closer now. Yeah, I guess pretty interesting. But so um, the story artist Bill Pete gave the suggestion that the chipmunks would have distinct personalities. Uh, he specifically said that one of them should be a goofball, and so it was. Uh, they make their first named appearance in the 1947 short Chip and Dale. And they're named after the Chippendale style of furniture, which is referenced at the beginning of the movie. And, uh, that, and that name was suggested by the screenwriter Tex Henson. Chippendale, also a critically acclaimed short, also gets an Oscar nomination. And they would appear in 17 more shorts opposite Donald Duck between 1948 and 1956. Most of them directed by Jack Hanna. They also had three starring shorts of their own. Um... Yeah, that's sort of the, you know, they, they had a little bit of a run during this, <laughs> during this, you know, 40s and 50s Disney era. But by the end of the 50s, Disney had uh, shuttered their short film division. And uh, Chip and Dale, they, they instantly lived on because they already had a, a series of comics. There, there were the, the Chip and Dale comics in the late 50s, early 60s, started in 55, lasted till 62. <laughs> And also, um, first of all, there was some new animations for a Wonderful World of Disney episode that they hosted, um, but also they were characters in Disney's portion of the Ice Capades, and then uh, all the, you know, costumes from the Ice Capades carried over to when they opened Disneyland in 55, so Chip and Dale were, like, original Disneyland characters. And then uh, 1961, the costumes were... Uh, redesigned. It was it was Chip and Dale and Clarice, who is like this uh, this 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 chipmunk who first appears in uh, in the short two chips and a mist. That's like a sort of uh, you know love interest for both of them. And she was part of the Ice Capades thing, part of the original Disneyland thing. She gets phased out with the sixty one redesign, and she disappears completely from the parks until around two thousand nine. She is, however, pretty popular in Japan okay i a character i've never heard of so that's interesting i want to look into her uh i'm 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 curious why they brought her back was she like did they make a new comic or bring her back for uh, something that caused her to come back to the park or were they just like we need a female chipmunk yeah i think they you know they're always 
I'm sure they're always looking for new characters to drag out, but I think a big part of it actually was the fact that, like, she continued to have this popularity in Japan. She, you know, some of the the Japan-specific Disney-licensed games and, and uh, merch and stuff would feature her, and she, you know, they, they brought her back to, like, Tokyo Disney in 2005, and then I think she was probably successful there, and they were like, "Let's try her out in Europe around 2009," and then she sort of sort of got phased back in that way. So, uh, in the early 1980s, uh, a push began to revive many of these classic Disney characters with new projects. Uh, one of the first things to come of this was the half-hour special Mickey's Christmas Carol in 1983. It's the first original piece of Mickey animation in like 30 years. And uh, it had cameos from like, you know, dozens of characters from the from the Mickey Mouse world. There were a lot in the main cast, but they also tried to get a lot of different cameos in there. Chip and Dale are, do have a brief cameo in that short. Uh, and they were also going to have a cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They, you know, there's another case where they like wrote in a bunch of uh, <laughs> cameos to appear there. They were going to be in a scene at Marvin Acme's funeral and that scene got cut. So they... Lost, lost the Roger Rabbit gig. <laughs> in the mid '80s, uh, there were Michael Eisner, who becomes uh, the CEO of Disney in '84. He he puts together this idea of moving into TV animation, uh, and he invited this whole team of Disney creatives to pitch shows for this Disney animation lineup that becomes the Disney Afternoon. The first one to, well, the first ones to come out are The Wuzzles and uh, The Adventures of the Gummy Bears, which was suggested by Michael Eisner himself. <laughs> like, like early on, he was like, we should do something with gummy bears. And then they just, <laughs> they just sort of ran with that. The, the first show to actually come out of that was DuckTales, uh, which was based on the Uncle Scrooge comics, which were very successful. So, you know, it, it, it comes out, it was sort of this launch pad, uh, <laughs> in a matter of speaking, for the, <laughs> for, for the, whole, the whole Disney afternoon lineup. And uh, Disney put $20 million into this thing, and it was a, a huge hit. So they start really kicking these afternoon ideas into high gear, getting people to, to pitch stuff. Uh, one person, Jim Magan, pitches an adventure series about Baloo from The Jungle Book. That becomes Tailspin. They they put that into production pretty soon after uh, DuckTales hits. Uh, animator Tad Stones, his first pitch is a show called Mickey and the Space Pirates. And that gets turned down because they're like, you know, they're interested in reviving these classic characters, but they're like, we're not touching Mickey. <laughs> it's It's really like in in the like 2010s that they start to consider doing something different with mickey they're 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 like very closed off about that makes sense i think also mickey has the least personality of like that core trio of like goofy and donald and mickey he's the one that you can like play around with the most you can make him like very much a straight man or kind of a little more sarcastic or uh sort of change his role depending on like the dynamic that he is placed in especially if he's with donald and goofy so i see like where they're especially because you know there was ducktales and there was quack pack and there was goof troop like they certainly did things with 
um, with Donald and Goofy. But with Mickey, mm-hmm. I, I understand, like, the hesitation as a brand to sort of put a concrete personality on Mickey because he yeah. sort of exists to be the vague representation of the wholesomeness and goodness of Disney, and you don't want to get more specific than that. Yeah, I, I think you can go back to, you know, he takes on a lot of different personalities in those early shorts, and I think in the early, early ones, he's a little more mischievous, uh, but... Especially, like, as soon as they sort of shift focus from uh, shorts to parks, it's like Mickey's just a symbol now. Like, we like we can't, you know, Mickey is the brand. And especially, I think, after Walt dies, they really start to lean into, like, Mickey as representative of the brand. Although, of course, Walt spearheaded that. But, yeah. Uh, one of the shows, this is a, a bit of an aside, but one of the shows that was part of this of this Disney afternoon pitch marathon thing that uh, gets brought up is a Rocky and Bullwinkle reboot. And they get, like, really far <laughs> into this Rocky and Bullwinkle show. They come up with a name and a whole pitch deck, and they're doing designs for it and logos, and they're, uh, they're drawing sketches. They're coming up with episodes, and they're, they're about to pitch it to Eisner and Katzenberg. And then <laughs> they realize that they don't have the rights to Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> it took them that long? I was thinking when you said that, I was like, like, yeah, Disney is like this mass conglomerate now that owns like every IP. But I didn't think that they owned Rocky and Bullwinkle. And I was right, I guess. Yeah, the confusion came because they owned the video rights to, to Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> And in, in the early days, there were like three people who were working on this, and one of them was like, "Do we have Rocky and Bullwinkle?" And 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 another one was like, "Yeah, we have the we have the rights to it." And then like it was like Friday morning, <laughs> they were they were working on the pitch. One of them runs into the office and says, "Shut it down. <laughs> we don't have the rights." Wow. So they need kind of a last minute replacement for that. <laughs> and uh, they go to Tad Stones, the making of the Space Pirates guy, and they say, look, there's this DuckTales episode called Double O Duck. And uh, we want you to, uh, the, you know, it's about Launchpad becoming a secret agent. Basically, just make a show about that. So uh, Tad Stones, you know, I, re- I read interviews with him where he's like, I thought that was a really dumb idea. And the like spy parody thing had been really played out by that point. So he writes a script and he's not really feeling it at all. And he gives that script to Jeffrey Katzenberg and he's like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> this doesn't work. So they go back to the drawing board on that. It eventually turns into Darkwing Duck. Now, Tad Stones has another idea. <laughs> he, he says i want to make a show based on the rescuers wow i mean <laughs> i guess they did make um they did make the rescuers down under 1990 so it's not like they weren't thinking about that ip but i do find it funny i mean i find it funny that the rescuers down under was even made at all i find it funny that there was another avenue in which they wanted to pursue the Rescuers franchise because today the Rescuers mean nothing. No one, maybe it's a movie you saw on VHS as a kid. Nobody remembers it. 
uh, when people are talking about the Disney Renaissance, like the Rescuers Down Under technically falls in the Disney Ren or Rescuers Down Under, yeah, technically falls in the Disney Renaissance because it's between the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Nobody counts it because it doesn't fit the the model of of the Renaissance. You know, it's a, it's a leftover from from the eighties. We're trying to figure stuff out era that just ended up after the Little Mermaid. Um, so <laughs> I can't believe they were really committed to that Rescuers franchise. Yeah, well, Tadstones. Uh, you know, I I think. Uh obviously they're thinking about what characters they want to bring back and uh reinvent and you know the rescuers would come out like a decade earlier and he he saw it and he was like i think there's a lot of potential with these characters it's a really fun sort of idea here so he comes to jeffrey katzenberg and he says i i want to do something with the rescuers and jeffrey katzenberg is like great idea in fact i've already thought of it <laughs> So they're already doing Rescuers Down Under when Ted Stones comes in oh. with this idea. <laughs> so he has to sort of take his pitch and rework it into something else once again. He turns his idea into a different show about mice who are rescuers. Uh, he calls it Metro Mice, which is a parody on Miami Vice. And uh, the, there's a team of animals uh, at, the, at the show's core. It includes uh, a chameleon, a, a Chinese cricket, who I'm sure would have been very offensive, um, a uh, early versions of the Gadget and Monterey Jack characters, and a heroic Indiana Jones-inspired mouse by the name of Kit Colby. That's his idea. It's an original show. It's interesting just because all of the other ideas up to this point were all like based on previous, you know, things the the Mickey, the the rescuers, the, the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, mm -hmm. So I do find it interesting um, how much of the Disney Afternoon was based on previous IP. I guess uh, it makes sense because so much eighties. You know, cartoon stuff was stuff like, uh, like like He Man and stuff or GI Joe. It was made to make toys, so they weren't going for that same sort of sell toys. The purpose of the show is to advertise toys thing, but it works as an advertisement. I guess it's easier if you eat. It's easier if you're like, oh my god, it's it's Donald. What's Donald doing? Then you know, having to build a new character. Um, yeah. I, I think I think at this point, from the Eisner perspective, it's sort of part of a way of like taking these Disney characters that are considered sort of old fashioned and like uh, making them hip for kids again. Um, I, there's there's probably a corporate perspective. It might be Jeffrey Katzenberg's, where like the idea of this whole thing is to do shows based on the old characters, but. Eisner's the one who suggests gummy bears first, so I think there's also just like so there there's room for some originality in there, but I think like their their crutch whenever they have to fall back on something is uh let's throw an old Mickey character in there. Speaking of which, uh Tadstones pitches this show uh, in a meeting with Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. They like the pitch, but they don't like Kit Colby. 
And this is the quote from Stones. They went, we love the idea of the show, but your main character doesn't have it. The meeting went on a little longer, and we're saying DuckTales is a big success. What other Disney characters can we work with? You don't want to do Mickey or Goofy, but there's Pluto and all that. Finally, I said, there's Chip and Dale. Eisner said, great, put those guys in the show. And Jeffrey said, home run. (laughs) There you go. I mean, if you need... If they already had mice involved, then sticking another small rodent in there. Yeah. Isn't too much of a stress. I like to imagine, I read a little bit of this, like, encyclopedia of characters from the old, uh, from the old Mickey cartoons for this, and I imagine they were just looking through it, like, who could we get here? Oh, Chippendale. <laughs> I, I, it makes me curious, because of my general lack of familiarity with the classic Disney cartoons, what characters have been left in the dust, you know? Like, Clarabelle Cow has had, like, a very light resurgence of she's never done anything significant, but, you know, she exists in the background of things. Um, And it's like, would we care about Chip and Dale at all if they hadn't made Rescue Rangers? Uh, Because it's like, I can see the way that, like, Mickey and Goofy and Donald would have stuck around without, you know, their 80s, 90s cartoons. But I feel like it would have been a lot easier for Chip and Dale to just kind of be like, oh, like those two guys that used to chase Donald around, but not the lasting characters. Definitely. I I mean, you know, of all the characters who have been brought back with like the nephews and 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 pete and you know they 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 really did sort of dig pretty deep into this world but i do think that like if they hadn't done chippendale it would have just been like there there was like a bear at some point it would have just been like oh yeah there's some some chipmunks chip takes on the like kit colby indiana jones look dale gets like a magnum pi makeover and they just they they run with this chippendale idea they trim some of the fat from the supporting cast and uh, they make Chippendale Rescue Rangers which airs for 65 episodes all originally broadcast between 1989 and 1990 it runs in syndication until 93 in the Disney afternoon lineup keeps going you know three runs after that and uh, it did well sold merch there's video there's a video games there's a comic book series it got nominated for an Emmy it was a it was not a DuckTales hit but it was a hit and I think that since then, Chip and Dale have kind of not really gone anywhere. Like, like they stopped doing the Disney Afternoon, and then they kind of stopped doing TV animation altogether for a little bit. And they, you know, ha- had another sort of uh, uh, down period in the in the 2000s, where they were once again, like, we don't really know what we're doing in, in animation. And um, yeah, I think as... They got the animation ball rolling again. They were like, let's look into these classic characters again. And, uh, you know, they're obviously doing doing all these reboots, all these remakes, all these, you know, the live action remakes and stuff. And so uh, when someone came forward with an idea for a new Chip and Dale thing in 2014, they were like, okay, let's do it. Yeah, I was thinking, I did a little bit of my own research, actually, because I was curious what Chip and Dale did between the end of the show and this movie. Um, And I was thinking about, like, what other Disney properties have existed for, like, the Disney Disney brand characters. Um, So, like, since then, there was, you know, Goof Troop and then a Goofy movie. There was some more, like, 
direct-to-video Mickey Mouse stuff. There was the House of Mouse series, which they used to, like, show old things. Um, there was, uh, um, there was flashback things. They, like, really tried to keep pushing Donald even after DuckTales failed. Um, one thing that I, I looked up is, uh, what role they play in the Kingdom Hearts series, because I was really curious, um, if that had made a thing, because I know I'm very unfamiliar with Kingdom Hearts, but Mickey, Donald and Goofy are, like, the main guy's companions. Mickey's a big character, but from what I can tell, Chip and Dale are there, but they're very minor. They certainly aren't on the same level as the others. So we're certainly in, like, another big generation, I guess you could say, of, like, bringing those characters back with the new Mickey Mouse shorts, with the 2017 DuckTales series, um, and, like, now with this movie. But... They have been a little, they have kind of just been floundering between, um, between the end of Chippendale Rescue Rangers and the movie Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Yeah, they've been in limbo, which I think is a, I, I think they're, for the kind of movie that this ended up being, and there's some, some history on the film itself, but I think that they are kind of, they're they're well situated as characters to be for this this kind of story of having a reboot because it is there's sort of a comedy to the idea that they would have a reboot even though they were part of this successful show uh uh in the 90s and i think the their sort of stagnation since then and the fact that you know most kids would probably only vaguely know of chip and dale today if they if they know of them um yeah, I I think it worked out nicely in terms of where Chip and Dale were when when this movie came to be. The uh, initial pitch for a Rescue Rangers reboot was by commercial director Robert Rugen, who was at the time sort of picking up a lot of these projects. He had pitched, you know, he was going to do adaptations of the book series Children of the Lamp and The Genius Files. And uh, he was working on this original story called Beauregard Thibodeau. The first two didn't happen. The, se- the third one is supposedly maybe becoming something at HBO Max. Um, and at the time, the announcement was just like, this is a live-action CG hybrid movie, some sort of an origin story for the Rescue Rangers. There's very little, you know, said about what it actually was. And that was kind of the last <laughs> that people heard about it for like five years. And then we hear that they have thrown out Robert Rugen's pitch, and a, a new script has come in from Dan Greger and Doug Mand, who are two writers from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and How I Met Your Mother. Uh, this is and and the you know this new self-referential sort of uh, meta script, and they've already found a director for it, Akiva Schaefer of The Lonely Island. When I saw that, like I I knew that Andy Samberg was in the cast. Um... But, you know, like, big actors doing uh, movies aimed at kids isn't um, isn't uncommon by any means. In fact, it's the norm now, and I'm a bit salty about it, because television has a beautiful voice acting industry that mm-hmm. rarely gets utilized. I was kind of amazed that Tress McNeil played Gadget, because I was so sure that they were going to replace her. There's a lot of strange stuff about Gadget in the movie that I'm sure we'll get to, but it's weird that of the main four, the two, you know, poster name comedians, one uh, legacy Australian actor who hasn't done anything in a long time, and the actual voice actor from the show. (laughs) Like, it's weird that, that, that... 
I, I guess it's the same thing with how they get the original uh, tale, the, the the or the regular tales uh, voice actor for Sonic Two. Yeah, it's as long as you have a few big names in there, you can fill in the other parts with you know actual voice actors. But like I was saying, like when I saw Andy Samberg attached, I was like, okay, you know, he's he's jumping on the train of of big name celebrities doing uh, big. Uh, animated movies nothing different and i saw that uh, akiva schaefer was involved and i'm i'm not super familiar with uh with the lonely island but i i'm I'm familiar enough with their work and i was like okay them as a team this isn't just like andy samberg you know doing some quick cash working in a studio for a few weeks this is like this is going to have like implications on what the movie is and you can definitely see their humor in the movie uh, Gregor and Mann say that their initial pitch was to have Chip and Dale exist as actors from the show, and so as they were fleshing out the pitch, they quickly became interested in setting it in the world of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So while well, it grew sort of separately from the like live-action CG hybrid version, but it, it you know, as they were thinking about uh, Roger Rabbit and, and setting something in that world, they develop this idea of using it as a way to send up the various forms of animation that have blossomed since Roger Rabbit came out. So in 2020, Disney screened footage of the film for investors, and at that point it was revealed that Chip and Dale would be played respectively, and I, I hope I don't mix them up at any point by by Mulaney and Sandberg. Uh, and at this point it was privately announced and leaked that it would release on Disney+. Plus. The animation was done by the Moving Picture Company, who had also worked on uh, the live-action Jungle Book, live-action Lion King, uh, and the Sonic movies. They, you know, do a lot of this this live-action CG integration, and so they uh, they you know came back around for this. Uh, one of the animators who worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit was brought on just to animate the Roger Rabbit cameo. That's nice. I have I have more to say about all the Roger Rabbit comparisons later, but th- bringing back someone from the original movie to animate him—that's a nice gesture. Yeah, and they um, there there were some other you know because there are a lot of different animation styles. He did bring in some select animation teams to do specific sequences. Uh, Passion Pictures, who do a lot of the animatics for League of Legends, did parts of it. Uh, Mercury Filmworks, who do a lot of. Uh, a lot of modern 2D animation. They did uh, Star vs. the Forces of Evil. They and a lot of stuff in that style. Uh, they you know just brought on a lot of different studios to do uh, different elements of it. Uh, despite only having one major live action character, the film was shot entirely on sets, which you can sort of tell by watching it. It's a very I I might as well just talk about that. You know, we'll get to it in a minute, but it's crazy. Uh, and then, yeah, the film premiered on Disney Plus on May 20th, which is five days ago as we're recording this, and Gregor and Mand have stated that a sequel is possible. So, into the film itself. Um, I want to just, like, get it out of the way because we already talked about the Roger Rabbit stuff. I have feelings about this comparison. I'm a very passionate fan of, like, animation as a medium and what it can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that... You said that they wanted to showcase animation styles that have developed since Roger Rabbit. But to me, I kind of feel like what they did is also almost an insult to Roger Rabbit itself. Because they have this whole thing about, oh, uh, uh, Dale Dale is in more realistic, detailed CGI. 
And Chip is animated in uh, cel-shaded uh, 3D animation. Mm-hmm. And so they have this whole thing about, oh, I had the CG surgery, you know, so I could stay hip and cool with the fans. But I feel that the impact of that and what they're trying to say with it, like, it's it's mostly a joke. There isn't a lot of plot, aside from, like, some things about, like, he's not as flexible as he used to be because CG animation is stiffer. Um, there isn't a lot of plot-relevant stuff about Dale being more realistic CGI. But they have this whole thing, like, oh, he had the CGI surgery. Oh, they look so different. But they don't actually animate Chip in 2D. And I feel like... I I realized it was likely difficult, and I read that the budget for the film was a lot smaller than most Disney animated films, so I, I maybe it just was impossible with the budget, but I was really disappointed that even, like, shouting out Roger Rabbit in the film very early on, and all these comparisons made in, like, the production of being in the same world, that there was very little actual 2D animation, and that they relied so much on cell shading. The thing that does it for me, this did have you know something of a budget it was it's you know bigger budget than any of the other lonely island movies but uh it's really an issue where first of all you know roger rabbit was really you know bringing together i mean first of all having access to a lot of the legacy disney animators a lot of the current disney animators having animators from other studios sort of uh sort of being brought into the fold and this movie they did work with several studios but they really did not have access to like Disney resources at all. Which is kind of ironic considering that in the end it was all under the Disney brand. Uh, and it's all for the Disney brand and supporting the whole reboot of um, of the Rescue Rangers franchise. That's the dissonance, isn't it? Is that like, it, it's, you know, uh, uh, it, it's a mockery of a lot of the Disney corporate interests and it's sort of this... You know, it's a very un-Disney movie, often an anti-Disney movie, and yet its success is Disney's success. That's that's sort of the 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 balancing yeah. act there. I was thinking a lot in terms of like more Roger Rabbit comparisons about like the cameos, uh, this movie versus the mm. other movie. Um, in Roger Rabbit, from what I understand, it was mostly there was some characters from other studios, but at, at the time, the big studios who had recognizable characters were Disney and Warner Brothers. And so they had a deal where no major Disney characters could show up without having an equal amount of screen time for uh, major Warner Brothers characters. So that's why they were often paired up. That's why there's like the parachuting scene with Bugs and Mickey where they fall and the, so they're on screen for the same uh, like amount of frames or... Uh, the piano duel between uh, Donald and Daffy. Because if you paired them together, then it was easier to make sure that they would have the same amount of screen time. And so a lot of that was done in, like, cooperation, and so it felt very intentional with including the characters. Uh, For this movie, a lot of the cameos really felt like they were there. Uh, There were a few times where I paused and I went, like, is this cameo making a joke? Is this cameo, like, what is this cameo doing? Is it making a joke? Or do I just find it funny because I go, oh, a character I know. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I, I stopped and I paused a lot. And I think also Disney's reputation in terms of, like, buying stuff out affected that. Like, uh, at the beginning you see Chip, like, reach into his freezer to grab, like, a frozen meal. And there's uh, Ice Age ice cream in the freezer. And that's a funny joke, but 
considering that they pre- dismantled Blue Sky Studios like less than a year ago, it, it the references feel less like a genuine bringing together of characters, and some of them left a bad taste in my mouth. So um, I felt like the the implication of the cameos was kind of different. That's the thing. First of all, I I. I mean, obviously, it it, it, it it you can assess this as a Disney movie because it is a Disney movie. But I also feel like, in a way, there there was no level of the intention of this movie that was aligned with Disney. They, I I think a lot of the a lot of the reasons that it doesn't feel as much like it's pulling something off, and, and Roger Rabbit is, is is a magic trick in so many ways, both you know in terms of the you know on, from the corporate side and from the filmmaking side, but. There's no corporate magic trick to be had here because it feels like the, and, you know, having read some things about this, it feels like the arrangement was more like, we're not going to ask questions, but you're also not going to get a lot of our resources. So I think you 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 can't really consider this movie, or, or it, it wouldn't be fair necessarily to consider this movie as a creation of Disney or a reflection of Disney values. I see that, yeah. And then, of course, there is, like... You know, I having having read up on some of the things they had to do to to make Roger Rabbit, it's true that there was a lot of finagling and and, and you know studio interests figuring out how to the, the the right way that each that each character is is portrayed that they bring in, and they talked to a lot of the other studios about getting like Fleischer characters in there, getting Hanna Barbera characters in there, and just generally not being able to reach deals with them, which is sort of why it becomes mostly about the Disney and Warner Brothers characters coming together. And I think in this movie, I, I think there's a, a, a reflection on some level of like, this isn't this isn't a Mickey and Bugs movie because it's, it's about Chip and Dale. And part of the idea is that Chip and Dale are sort of these side characters who uh, have sort of a fleeting relevance. And so uh, they, they do tend towards... Uh, deliberately, I think, having, you know, uh, lesser known characters. I mean, we, you know, I, I've, I, I don't necessarily agree with the, with the assessment that, 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 that any of the cameos are, are for the sake of cameos. Cause I, I think there are some that are not, um, the, there are some that could come with jokes, but I think they're all, they are all sort of fitting into where they are and so much of this movie is about like the overlooked the neglected characters in this in this roger rabbit world where it's like you know dale is is just at this convention with you know uh tigra and and ugly sonic and and you know these these characters that are sort of that have a certain window of relevancy but have sort of been left behind and i think that's also the setting of a lot of this this sweet pete underground stuff with the you know the uh the 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 elements that we see on the on on that wall with the uh, you know Jimmy Neutron's hair and it's just, it's just I don't know I feel like there's something kind of really clever in like which characters are chosen and the way that they get them and even like there's a there's a great gag near the end of the movie that's like four different Seth Rogen characters talking yes, to each other yes I did like that <laughs> and, and but but I also feel like the characters that they chose are characters that would make sense to be in that space you know I do. I'm curious how the deals were made for this movie in terms of uh, referencing characters that aren't Disney. Because um, I know, like, 
a lot of times when companies let other companies do stuff with their characters, there's a lot of issues. Like, okay, how is it going to represent us? Because in the end, these are our characters. And then there's that whole gag about, like, we raided Nick Jr. Studios. That guy got attacked by Paw Patrol so hard, he can't have kids. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, why did Nickelodeon let you make a joke about Paw Patrol ripping a guy's dick off? Yeah, I... <laughs> I <laughs> I think it, it's another way that, like, just just the game has changed, and I think this idea of Disney uh, as a usurper, as 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 a studio that's sort of encroaching on everything, in some ways probably made it easier for studios to be like, yeah, I guess you can put put put, put little references in your thing. But I think also there was probably a lot of like, well, you can use this character, but you can't use that character. Um, and I think from the Lonely Island point of view, I'm sure there was a perspective of like, what can we get away with as parody? And, you know, what do we have to like make deals about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can get into the, the, the story a little bit. It sort of opens with, um, with, with Dale's narration about, uh, about, you know, Chip and Dale. And, uh, we see him in the present a little bit. And then we see, uh, how they met. It's interesting that they, uh, ignore, all that history of Chip and Dale that I just talked about, <laughs> but I th- I feel like that's intentional. I feel like they're th- th- this movie is like we're not worrying about uh, history. We're just you know they're they're more worried about I guess in universe Roger Rabbity history because I do think that this movie is intentionally and deliberately and genuinely a film in the world of Roger Rabbit. I don't think it's it's a, a reference. I think I think that. You know, it is that. It also just is a reference to, like, how their characters have changed from, you know, like, the the unintelligible antagonists who, you know, get in Donald, Pluto and then Donald's way versus, like, you know, the heroes. Um, and it's, in a way, they're the same characters and in a way, they're different characters. And the movie's backstory uh and includes uh, the the Rescue Rangers version of their characters, but it doesn't include the, mm-hmm. the not relevant ones. Um, and I think that's really common I, I guess, with Disney. I guess, I, I guess it could just as easily be said that A, the history from like one cartoon to the next back in the day didn't mean anything. And also like, you know, the fact that they're Rescue Rangers doesn't really jibe with the previous history either. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious what you think about the whole, like, conflict setup that they have of uh, Rescue Rangers is a shown universe, it's successful, and then Dale's, like, secretly developing his own show behind Chip's back without telling him, and Chip feels betrayed, and Dale's like, but I gotta do it because I want to be famous, uh, and then mm-hmm. kind of, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, uh, he's developing a show called Double O Dale, which uh, is probably could definitely be a reference to that DuckTales episode that sort of in a way launched the development of the Rescue Rangers. Yeah, I I think that's definitely the case. Um I you know that betrayal scene is such a is, is such a trait and you know done a thousand times thing. I like first of all that they do it at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> There's something kind of fun about that. And I honestly like at first it seems like a really basic conflict that's just like oh he like lied to him or whatever, but like as the movie goes on 
and we they sort of reflect on it and you know we see more of chip's perspective and we see him being like actually i like you thought that that i sort of came to you in your time of need but actually you came to me in my time of need like i i like that they did that early and then sort of changed the dynamic of it over the course of the movie i I, I think like in the end it was well done there was still a bit of that you know end of second act beginning of third act betrayal like in the in the police station i think it was mm-hmm. where they were like should we give up on i think it's like should we give up on finding monty but it becomes less of like a big burden because you've already seen them like but have a betrayal and then become friends again and so you kind of know, like, you know, because that's how movies work, but you also know because they've already proven that they work together well as adults as or as, you know, like present day characters that, yeah, they're probably going to make up by the end of the movie. I, I was so ready for the like, you know, because this movie is playing off of cliches, I was really ready for like, as they were laying the hints for the Kiki Lane character being uh, being actually a bad guy, I was like, okay, so that's going to be it. And then when the J.K. Simmons character, the Detective Putty, is actually the bad guy, I was like, oh, <laughs> even though that, as they say, is like the classic thing of, you know, the, the chief of police turns out to be working with the anime. Yeah. It's th- they bring it up so that, like, they make you go, oh, they they know about this, so they're not going to play it straight. And then because they want you to think that they're not going to play it straight, they play it straight. Um, exactly. I also, I, the, the, like, I'm sure it's mostly fake claymation, but I, I really like the integration of that jk simmons character and just the different you know the different like speed that he has and i i I think that's something that i really like about this movie is that we're talking about the the different forms of animation that that it looks at and i think it manages to have different kinds of cg animation coexist in like uh you know a way where i don't think i've i I feel like i've never (laughs) seen a movie that like had you know two different like two different like styles of cg animation coexisting in the same world the way that the way this movie does and it's not just the like fake 2d it's you know the like robert zemeckis like mocap stuff with with the with the seth rogan character it's you know at the end the villain morphs into this character that's like Pixar animation here and and like the 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 cell shading animation here and has like a transformer leg and just you know I I really was yeah it felt like something I'd never seen before this integration of multiple different styles and eras of CG like sort of in the same place I I mostly agree with that I do think there were some times where the the cell shaded animation felt a bit janky I feel like I guess the best way to describe it is that it it didn't really feel like the 2D character, well, the, the cel-shaded characters existed in the environment in quite the same way as the CG characters did, which I would honestly attribute to the fact that it is very hard. It's a lot easier to integrate a CG character into uh, a real-world environment, and it's something that the film industry has been, you know, perfecting for the last... 30 years um versus like 2d which is you know one of the things that makes roger rabbit so amazing and i think that like the cell shaded animation they just didn't quite know how to make it work the same way they did with the cg um but i do agree that the 
a just vast array of animation styles is exciting, but I still feel like this sort of venture off because CG and and live action existing in film is you know it's in so common these days it's not even like worth saying anything about we we don't consider films that have significant CG in them animated movies unless they call themselves that because it's like then you could call like this movie had you know live action sets but um uh and like the characters are mostly animated and then you had the live action character the Ellie but it's like okay if this film is can be called uh, like a live action animated combination like why don't we call uh you know MCU movies that even though there is so right. much CG in there yeah I, I i guess for me it's not about the 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 3D and 2D or the the CG and live action but just the 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 i mean like i was saying the different types of CG that 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 you know coexist in the same space i do think that there is um it's tricky because they're trying to do two things at once with the with the fa- with the uh, cell shading animation is they're trying to make it look like they're trying to make it look like '90s you know hand drawn animation, but also make it look kind of Roger Rabbity and like it's existing in the real world. And I think trying to you know imitate something while imitating something else you know it it, there are moments where it works and i i you know it really broke my immersion i think and there's not you know it's not really an immersive movie that's not really the idea there but like um yeah i i don't know it's 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 a, a very tricky balance and i think they probably did not have the the resources to really devote themselves to it yeah it it makes me hope that we'll have more movies that either fully animated or live action animation that explore different types of CG animation. Um, I'm kind of doubtful that we are going to have a movie, anything like Roger Rabbit. Um, I don't want to say ever, but anytime soon in the current state of Hollywood, but using more, more diverse uh, types of CG than just like, you know, the hyper realistic stuff uh, could be like a new avenue to, to telling stories that doesn't get, I mean, in, in many ways, and it's like, uh, the Sonic movie does it too. I mean, it's not like this is the first movie to do it. Um, which of course gets into the whole thing of Ugly Sonic because that's what, that Ugly Sonic is what happened when they tried to make Sonic too realistic to fit in the real world mm-hmm. and it did not work. Uh, and they make a ton of jokes about that. Yeah, I was surprised by uh, how big a character Ugly Sonic was. Yeah. I knew, I knew when, when it came out, I saw, you know, that that he was in the movie. And then watching it, I was like, oh, he's like a, a secondary character in this. <laughs> uh, and I love that. And I love Tim Robinson uh, as as Ugly Sonic. I think he does really fun things with the character. But um, he he's kind of a perfect fit in terms of like again the sort of world that this takes place in and the sort of overlooked characters in animation and how how they live life in in a in a Roger Rabbit type world. But um, you know from from the corporate angle of the idea of bringing characters together, it feels weird to have Ugly Sonic be like the primary you know, from another studio character in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I thought it ended up being very fun. You know, Mm -hmm. they're, I think in referencing him, they kind of run the the risk of him becoming an outdated meme, I guess. But I think that 
he has stuck around as like a cultural uh, or like, you know, an internet famous figure as this like representation of bad CG long enough that his inclusion in the movie neither felt forced nor like they were, it didn't feel like they were trying to bring something back, but it also didn't feel like they were trying to capitalize on trend. It felt like, like you said, like in the world of, you know, like these down and out and cartoons, you know, ugly Sonic trying to keep capitalizing on his 15 minutes of fame totally mm-hmm. makes sense. You mentioned the the live action sets, which uh, were something that like, I barely noticed while I was watching the movie. And then a couple days later, I was like, like, obviously, that's been done before. If you look at like Alvin and the Chipmunks or any of these, you know, animated characters coming into real life. But this is a movie that has one human character. <laughs> This is a movie where practically every shot is just animated characters interacting with each other. And they, they, you know, first the fact that they shot it all on sets, but also I think the fact that a lot of that, like, funny, dynamic Akiva Schaefer, like, style still comes through in in these shots that were done with like static models you know on sets like like the the fact that he was able to convey as much like character i think as in cinematography as 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 this movie has with that constraint of shooting uh, just like in just like empty rooms (laughs) is is you know i i was really kind of blown away by that in retrospect and it's something that's been done before, but it's just, you know, the movie magic of it, I feel like, really comes together in this. Definitely. Going back to some of the other, uh, I feel like we've talked a bit about, like, Chip and Dale in the movie. Um, I, I like their dynamic. I think that, you know, uh, Mulaney and Samberg have, have good chemistry. The dialogue's a bit cheesy, but, you know, it all works. I, I believe the, the arc that they're going through. I didn't care much for Ellie, the human character. I thought the acting was so-so. I think that it kind of suffered from one of the issues that uh, comes up whenever you have, like, whenever you have a live-action movie that has a lot of animated content, which is you don't have an actor to aim your dialogue and emotions at when you're filming, and so it can come off a little empty sometimes. And I think that that does happen from time to time but uh i also feel like it makes me kind of wonder why the film wasn't just totally animated i guess uh having ellie be there having her be a fan of chip and dale add some humor like this giant human who's a fan of these two little chipmunks having her not have not be a cartoon sort of can help separate her from, like, gives her a distance from the whole Sweet Pete thing that uh, can maybe be seen as, like, why why would she be working with him if she's not a cartoon? Like, what does she get from it? Why would she have a grudge or whatever? Um, but I feel like this film really could have been done completely animated, and so it, it, it does make me wonder why it wasn't. Um, but, I mean, I also like all the all the animation styles that we saw, and I don't know if they would have done that if they did it in just animated, so. Yeah, well, that's the thing. First of all, I think that, um, I, I, I agree that, like, 
and I've seen behind the scenes things where Kiki Lane is talking about the the challenge of <laughs> of kind of trying to trying to act against nothing and uh, you know trying to be put in the space of something being there. She's obviously you know done some incredible work as an actress, but she is uh, younger. And um, with with Roger Rabbit, I think the decision to have to have uh, Bob Hoskins uh, in, in that film a big part of it was the idea of like let's get some let's get you know someone who like lends a, a cinema credibility to the movie and is also just like a really experienced actor who can you know uh, has a really great like formal understanding of 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 you know uh, acting at things. Um, and so I, I do think that it doesn't always work. It doesn't, you know, she doesn't always feel integrated into that world. I do think that if she wasn't in it, and I don't think she needs to be in it, I think she could have been an animated character, could have been another kind of character. I, I, I like the idea of having a human character in here, but I agree that she kind of comes off as an afterthought, but I do think that if there were no human characters in it, it would, I, I would still want it to be live action, and I think that, like, Again, given how from from early on in the process, like they were like we're doing something in the Roger Rabbit world, I think like they would not have done it if it weren't in live action. You want to go back to talking about a a gadget in in, in Monterey Jack real quick? I guess talking about yes. how they bring in the other rangers. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I like the I, I you know the 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 cheese uh, addict and debt kind of you, you know there's there's sort of dark angle on 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 what Monterey Jack's been through since then. I think it's it's done it's funny and it's done well in terms of like uh, being just real enough, but <laughs> to, but but still you know fitting into that that cartoon world. I think it's so bizarre that Eric Bana is play, is playing Monterey Jack. I think that is just a, a wild decision. Like they could have gotten anyone, and uh, I think he does a great job. I you know doesn't lose anything from from having him in it, but it it is bizarre and. Gadget, I, I talked about this a little in the in the review that I wrote, which is not on my blog. It's on the the site that I write for. But the it's it's a th the idea of having Gadget be like a MacGuffin and come in, you know, to save the day near the end. That makes sense to me, given that Gadget is like a, a beloved character and is maybe the most beloved character from Rescue Rangers. And I think given that it makes sense to sort of save her until the end of the movie and then have her like come in and save the day. But it's so weird that they, they like do a joke about how she's exactly the same in real life as she is on the show. And like, I, I, I think that's funny. And I imagine the process there is they sort of wrote it that way. And they were like, we <laughs> she's just the same as she is in the show but um i i just think it's it's really strange <laughs> that you know she she sort of isn't integrated into into the world and you know having having trust with new player just making her like exactly the same feel it feels like it could be some kind of fan service but it also feels like fans would have probably liked to see a different take on gadget i don't know yeah I, I don't have any particularly strong feelings on it, mostly because I like I don't have any you know like emo I I also did not grow up on Rescue Rangers, uh, so like I gadget means nothing to me as like a you know a nostalgia thing, but 
But I do feel like her integration into the film, as you mentioned, was a bit weird that they go out of their way to show how the characters are both alike and different from their characters on the show. You know, like, Chip is still the the straight man, Dale is still the impulsive one, but what does that mean in the real world? Dale is still the gay man. (laughs) Um, What does that mean? What does that mean in the real world? Um, And so to not do that with a gadget... um, Especially because, like, they got Trust McNeil back. And it's like, here's someone with genuine voice acting credentials, and you're just making her go, I'm exactly the same. It's... <laughs> could have done more. It is funny, but it's just, like, in the broad scope of the movie, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of some of the other side characters we see, uh, I love Jorgensen, the, 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 the Muppet cheese seller. Um, yes, I, I, yes. I, know. I, always, I always I always love to see a Muppet and again I love the way that they like it's such a chore first of all just to like put a Muppet in a movie <laughs> like, like like you know if you watch any behind the scenes things for any kind of Muppet thing that's that's you know I think in and of, in and of itself but also just like <laughs> the idea of Muppets and animation is interesting the fact that Akiva Schaefer can just so smoothly do Muppet directing which is a whole different thing from regular directing and something that so many people have tried and failed to do and just yeah a really fun character also <laughs> yeah I'm a, I'm a bit sad that we didn't get to see more of him I want to know more about his like black market deals with uh oh I just realized we haven't talked about Sweet Pete yet we should probably get to that We'll get to Sweet Pete uh, in just a moment. I do. Part of me would have hoped that there would have they would have gotten an actual Muppet uh, in yeah. that role, just because Disney property and they, you know, wouldn't have been that hard. Um, I, I guess you know. I mean, he and himself, the character like Jorgensen, is kind of a you know a parody of Swedish Chef. You see him when he walks off like after he drops them off at sweet Pete's, he goes like he does kind of like a kind of like a, a swedish chef impression um but i do agree they probably could have used an actual muppet and that would have been especially cuz um i think it's one of those things where they're hesitant to use like uh characters that already have like you know a background to them in these sort of films cuz it's like oh what are the implications um, more than just, like, a joke, you know? So that's why you see Phineas's mom selling cupcakes on the street where everyone is a criminal, and you're like, oh my god, what's Linda doing on the side? But, like, <laughs> they're never actually gonna go into that. Yeah, I I, I guess I think about, like, hmm, they, they, I don't know, there's a, there's a weird balance there. It's the same thing with Detective Putty, where it's like, maybe they, like, wanted to just have that be Gumby, and then they couldn't. Whether it's like, it feels like there's one element... There, there's one level to which they're like, let's not lean on cameos. And then there's uh, another element that's like, I, I think they wanted to have, they, they're def- it's definitely not as like cameo reliant. It's it, it's reference reliant in ways, but I think it's less cameo reliant than, than well, reliant. But it has less of a focus on cameos than Roger Rabbit. But also I think there was an idea of like, we do want to have a lot of cameos and when we do we'll try to make it fitting for the scene and get some kind of joke in there and not have the joke just be that there is a cameo like like 
yeah I, and i feel that maybe there was a conversation where they were like it would sort of uh ruin the scene to to have an actual muppet in there i don't know but uh and and keegan michael key voices uh that character and he's he's just been everywhere this year but that does uh bring us into the he sort of turns out to be the main villain and there was a point where i was like so he's so where it seemed like they're you know putty or someone else was the actual big villain but then you know he does turn out to be the big villain sweet pete voiced by will arnett yeah um I found his design very off-putting, which I'm sure is intentional. He's supposed to look, you know, you know, a creepy guy who's not meant to be trustworthy. Um, uh, I've I've read some people say that the the character Sweet Pete has some very unfortunate comparisons to Peter Pan's actual voice actor, who was a child star with Disney. Um, won or was nominated for back when they did Juvenile Academy Awards was nominated for two I think his first movie was like Song of the South one of his last like big roles was Peter Pan and then he had puberty and then he did some uh, you know like one episode roles on uh, serials on TV lost his movie career uh, got addicted to drugs and died of an overdose um, at 31 so I've seen some people say that this sort of, like, failed child star that they make uh, Peter Pan has some unfortunate parallels to Bobby Driscoll. But I think that it's just kind of a parody of child actors in general, of them, you know, like, failing once they hit puberty and they aren't the precocious little kid anymore and then becoming washed up. Uh, and it kind of just happens that peter pan's actual voice actor was one of those uh was one of those uh, failed uh, child stars who like many unfortunately died of a drug overdose yeah i also think that like the idea of having peter pan in that role is actually like a very like 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 a like a mean joke about disney like 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 like, like that is to, to me the point at which this becomes a fundamentally and there are ways in which it is before but i think that's the point where it's like in its own subtle without actually saying it way like this is an anti-disney movie but then again it comes back to that thing we were talking about at the beginning where like because it is being released by disney <laughs> it, it, it's sort of um is self-defeating and can easily be read as uh some kind of further dig at bobby driscoll when in fact i think this is i i think the idea of doing this to the extent that i'm sure i'm sure someone along the way knew about the bobby driscoll thing and they were like i i think there's an extent to which it's like the way that disney treated bobby driscoll as an example of the way that this industry treats child stars and also you know the this sort of dark underbelly to these classic disney characters i think that uh it, it, again, it, it, it's a big idea that gets watered down by the the fact of this movie being produced by Disney. Yeah. I mean, it's as long as the internet's like been a thing, people have been going, oh, but what's the dark secret behind all these Disney movies? Or like, what happens afterwards when like the, the Disney magic stops and everything kind of falls apart? So sort of exploring that with Peter Pan... Um, I, I think is like a really creative direction to take. It's just, like you said, burdened by the fact that at the end of the day, it is all under Disney's umbrella and you kind of can't escape that. 
so uh sweet pete's plan involves uh abducting tunes who are down on their luck uh he, he is sort of you know again this movie takes place in the world of the tunes who are not as as famous as 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 roger rabbit and mickey and and bugs are in the in in roger rabbit the the, the sort of dangers that exist for them and we we sort of see it through the angle of these two kind of yuppies who are more well off but they you know that is a lot of what this movie is about and sweet pete's plan is that he abducts tunes who are down on their luck and you know he's it's sort of involved in all these uh has his fingers in all the pies uh you know when when people rack up a lot of debt he you know snatches them up and he uh morphs them into he uses a machine to morph them into bootleg versions of other characters ships them overseas where bootleg cartoons are produced with them also a lot of them in hollywood as it turns out yeah i think that the exploring you know the reference like they're called the valley gangs the people who have been abducting all these tunes and you find out that valley stands for uncanny valley and it's where all the like the the early early 2000s cg uh animations that tried to be realistic but the animation wasn't quite there yet that's where they all end up and uh like exploring uh you know acknowledging and disney's acknowledged bootlegs before i remember there's a gag in zootopia where uh, Duke Weaselton, who his name is a parody of the, the guy from Frozen, is selling a bunch of Disney knockoffs on a table. And that's that's a fun little gag there. So this is like a Disney further acknowledging and exploring it, uh, but turning it into not just like uh, a skeezy side business, but something traumatic that happens to down on their luck cartoons. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's... Uh... <laughs> I, I, I like that as a plot. I think it's really fun. Um, so, so some of the, the the bootleg cartoons that we see in sort of the the final action sequence, I like the I, I like the bootleg Simpsons uh, <laughs> a lot. I think there's uh, some so, some fun stuff that's sort of done with that throughout the movie. Um, I, I think the the bootleg thing is is a good idea for them to use. Because, like, existing in the Roger Rabbit world, it's very, like, meta about, like, cartoons and, like, what are their roles in the production of being, like, actors versus characters and how are they made uh, and, and stuff like that. I think that uh, exploring bootlegs as a part of that world of, like, okay, if these are actual people and not just, you know, drawings that are poorly replicated, then what does that mean when bootlegs exist? And it's also uh, a, an aspect of animation production that Disney can criticize without being hypocritical because uh, everyone can agree that, you know, these cheap bootlegs suck and Disney, as far as we know, doesn't have a hand in them. And so they can criticize it without being like, without it being something that Disney also does as a company, which I think when it comes to sort of like self-referential stuff in film can kind of sometimes make films less effective if the filmmakers are are guilty of the things that they criticize uh but here like criticizing bootlegs as you know a, a giant company is like criticizing something that everyone can agree isn't good uh and that they don't really have to worry about being implicated in yeah i i want to say maybe that uh the complaint about bootlegs is kind of one of the few areas where this 
could be mm, I, I don't think it is a disney complaint I, I i think it's you know again i don't think that disney as an entity had any hand in the making in, in the you know uh philosophy of this movie but uh, i i think the 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 bootlegs are one of the few areas where like from the perspective of disney it's like well of course you don't like bootlegs <laughs> you know and that is sort of something that uh you know if anything uh pulls me out of the the sort of angle that the movie itself takes it it it, it might actually be the, the the angle on bootlegs but um like there are a lot of there i i i think this movie is very funny i think the 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 script is really good there are a lot of gags that have uh stuck with me over the couple days i like the part where chip is like you know seeing a bunch of advertisements for reboots and of course the you know the sort of primary idea of this movie is sort of these these characters existing within a system that sort of rewards them for doing cheap reboots uh and i think i think it maybe draws a deliberate parallel between reboots and bootlegs too i think there is sort of an implicit idea that even though disney doesn't make bootlegs they are complicit in the bootlegs again to the extent that that, that this movie's ideas are are, are anti-disney i think that that is part of it but i was just gonna say that like and he's you know looking at all these dumb reboots that are getting made and then he sees a poster for batman versus et and he's like <laughs> oh that looks pretty good <laughs> At the end of the day, like it's it's the film is saying stuff you know about reboot culture as a whole as it's existed um, because we all complain about it. At the end of the day, there's always those reboots that we like, um, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, it's the the joke is that the film itself is like part of this culture of reboots, and the question is. Uh, do you as an audience member, I mean, you're, you're, you're watching it, but do you as an audience member come out the other side being like, this is one of the reboots that was worth it, or this is one of those, this is proof that reboots are awful and we have to stop making them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I can guess from what you've said that you, you're, you're part of the, the former of like, this is one of the good ones. <laughs> Although I don't, I don't know what your opinion is in reboots as a whole, so yeah i i guess my philosophy on it when watching it i was like this is a good reboot and then as i sort of did my research and started to see it less as uh i i mean there's the level at which it's like we brought back the rescue rangers and now they're gonna go on more adventures like there's that element of course but i think in coming to see it more directly as like uh commentary on new developments in animation and a spiritual successor to roger rabbit i think the um i I think i've come to appreciate it as something which is which is not a reboot yeah i was thinking about that i was watching the film because i mean technically it's just a sequel to rescue rangers that recontextualizes that series as existing as a series within their own world and not just like being a series that we consume but for them it's real you know Mm -hmm. so technically it's not even a reboot but it falls into that idea of like of of reboots and that it's taking a a franchise that you know hasn't done anything in 30 years with characters who have barely appeared in the last 30 years and is bringing them back for a new audience um and especially like at the very end of the movie and i i I, there there are a couple more things i want to say before we close but but at the very end of the movie when it's sort of 
when uh, the, the the final gag of Darkwing Duck booing them from fr- from the audience and sort of like hinting at potentially seeing a seeing a Darkwing story in this world, I was instantly like, I would love that because <laughs> because yeah. I've kind of always been a little bit, even though I I have not actually seen much of the Darkwing Duck show. I just whenever there's whenever I'm thinking about reboots that are happening, I'm like, you know, I think they could do some fun stuff with Darkwing Duck. Um, and so <laughs> that's, that's a funny thing because that that reminds me of what I was saying before about like going at the rescuers from multiple angles and trying to revive it. Um. In the 2017 DuckTales series, there's this whole thing of, like, Darkwing Duck was a series that existed in the world of DuckTales, um, uh, but, you know, like, a slightly modified version, because, you know, like, Launchpad is a character, so he, was, he wasn't a part of Darkwing Duck, because he's a character in DuckTales, and then they're rebooting it, and so there's, like, the old actor, uh, like, wants to come back, and there's this new guy who's kind of dumb, but he's, like, really heroic, like Darkwing, so he gets the part, and the old guy turns out to be uh, Negaduck. Um, and so that kind of, like, explains that. And then there's a whole episode where, like, like Scrooge and the nephews don't show up at all, and it's just a Darkwing Duck pilot episode. And the series ended in 2020, I think. Maybe last summer? 2020 or 2021. Um, and we have not heard anything about uh, a Darkwing Duck reboot coming, even though they pretty much dedicated uh, an episode of DuckTales to being a Darkwing Duck pilot. Um, so hopefully, between one of those two avenues, uh, Darkwing Duck gets uh, gets a reboot in some form. I would like to see it, but but uh, again, I see how. I see how they've tricked me <laughs> into like doing this movie where again so many of the great gags come from like making fun of reboots there's the joke uh <laughs> about how the uh, about like characters rapping in reboots and then they try to rap and they just talk about eating whale the whole time <laughs> maybe maybe the funniest thing of the movie to me but um and then at the end of the day they <laughs> I, 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 you know, I don't think this was fully the Lonely Island's intention, but they come back around to me being like, okay, I want to see more of this world. I want to see other characters coming in, you know? Yeah. If they do make a sequel, I think my only hope with it is that because the sequel would have to be, again, about, like, the Rescue Rangers as a team versus just, like, Chip and Dale with the other Rescue Rangers being secondary or even, like, tertiary characters, um, I want to know what what's up with Gadget. They gotta tell me, like, okay, she really, like, what is that? It's it's a fun joke. I'd love to see them see them explore that more if they did a full movie. Or, or if they did a full second movie. But, um, it seems like it's getting good reviews. Um, yeah. Of course, like, we can't look at ticket sales because it's on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if they've released, like, streaming numbers for it at all. Um, for, like, its they opening weekend. But they don't, so <laughs> we'll see some eventually maybe if you know it's done well enough in terms of views to to warrant a sequel yeah that's that's the thing though in terms of like where to go from here i feel like if they did another rescue rangers movie it would be a little hard to pull that off uh they they could make it work but i i just think that part of the real charm of this movie is that it's exploring a a different angle on animation and b a different angle on this Roger Rabbit type universe. So lo- looking at a different type of character, and so I would like to see them if they were to do a third one to explore like another different type of character. That's sort of what I think they could do with 
with a Darkwing Duck movie, even though you're talking about like 90s Disney animation either way, I feel like that could be something like the Lego Batman movie where it's like self-contained but a spiritual sequel and, you know, sort of taking connecting characters and sort of telling a unique story. I feel like there's, there's fun stuff to be done there. Yeah, I'm always down for like a good comedic commentary on like on superheroes in various forms. I think Lego Batman was was a great movie um and it's exploring of like a, a comedic take on like what does it really mean to live like Bruce Wayne and also looking at like the Joker and Batman's relationship. So, I definitely think that they could do something like that with with Darkwing Duck. Yeah, I guess the I, I guess the thing would be like if they were just commenting on superhero movies that would a be sort of pulling away from animation a little bit and be be pretty similar to what the Teen Titans Go movie did. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like if they're going to do they're going to do a sequel, and I think they are. I would like, and I I think I I'm sure that the Lonely Island and and Gregor and Man, like I'm sure their perspective, creative perspective, is we want to look at a different part of this world. But I wonder if the disney idea is going to be like you're going to get another chip and dale movie and you live with it so <laughs> we'll see yeah um but yeah i enjoyed this movie a lot when i watched it and uh in the time since my opinion on it has uh, only improved i think i'm a little more a little less positive on it than you are but i think talking to you has really made me see appreciate the, the parts of the film that I did like, appreciate the humor, mm. appreciate um, sort of the commentary that it's making. I guess as someone who cares about the medium of animation so much and also has a lot of interest in like the animation industry and sort of how it, how that works. Uh, some of the things like the choice to do cell shaded stuff instead of actual 2D uh, really like, it, it holds me back in a way that I don't think it will for many viewers, but that's just an Alex thing. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, a lot of people have that complaint, especially when the trailer came came out. I do think that, like, at the onset, I was like, this looks like the Futurama PS2 game. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't know. My, my perspective on the movie has become that it is ultimately about CG animation and the many forms that it's taken since uh, 88. So, so, you know, I sort of came around on it. Um but yeah, I see the other perspective for sure. So Alex, thank you so much for joining me on a great episode of Fall Friction. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delightful conversation. Yes. To, to those of you who have been listening, uh, thank you for keeping up with us. Uh, if you like the show, you can support it by subscribing to my Substack, following us on Twitter at It's Pulp Friction, uh, you know, following us on where, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, sharing it with your friends is one of the best things you can do. And I will see you all next week. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.